We have a favor to ask. Our partner is conducting a survey and would be grateful for your help in answering a few questions. It'll take less than 10 minutes of your time, and your participation helps support our advertisers. Please go to slatestudy.com to complete the short survey now. This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Monday, October 7th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets, the brilliant, well-regarded GM, was traveling with his team for a preseason game in Japan. He tweeted, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. So sensible a stance as to almost be not a stance. It's an acknowledgement of a basic truth. Hong Kong and the residents therein want freedoms, kind of close to the freedoms Americans have. Freedoms like speech, assembly, self-determination, fair trials, due process. And they are scared because Hong Kong's in this liminal state as part of China, but also an administrative state that has, of course, British history, which is to say a liberal history and institutions. Again, if I told you or if you told me or anyone who follows the NBA, hey, Daryl Morey, a smart guy, a good GM, by all accounts, a good person, a humanist. I've interviewed him a few times. We bonded over our shared affection for musical theater. If you told me that he would have this stance and tweet this stance, I would find it 0% remarkable. But the NBA powers that be would not let it be. First, Tillman Fertitta the new Rockets owner, he recently acquired the team, he made clear on Twitter that Daryl Morey doesn't speak for us. Okay, Farita is a bombastic billionaire whose new book is called Shut Up and Listen, not to protesters in favor of human rights, just to people in general, fine. But the most appalling reaction was that the NBA itself weighed in and they were not pro-Morey. They were pro-China. Here was their statement. We recognize that the views expressed by Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey have deeply offended many of our friends and fans in China, which is regrettable. While Daryl has made it clear that his tweet does not represent the Rockets or the NBA, the values of the league support individuals educating themselves and sharing their views on matters important to them. We have great respect for the history and culture of China and hope that sports and the NBA can be used as a unifying force to bridge cultural divides and bring people together. Except, I guess, if you're in Hong Kong, then we can fire tear gas at you. By the way, in Chinese, the translation, and this is according to humans and machine translators, in Chinese, it was a little rougher on Mori, saying the NBA is, quote, extremely disappointed in him and his, quote, inappropriate comments, because there's a lot of money at stake. NBA China, the branded entity, now worth more than $4 billion. That means $133 million a team. Tencent, which is the NBA's largest partner outside the U.S., rebroadcaster of NBA games, they signed a five-year $1.5 billion deal. Did you know that Game 6 of the NBA Finals last year was watched by 21 million people in China? How about the U.S.? 18.34 million people. Yes, China does have almost 1.5 billion people. That's why it's a coveted market for the future. But for now, China loves basketball and they used to love the Houston Rockets before a day or two ago. The greatest Chinese basketball player of all time, Yao Ming, was a Houston Rocket. Now Tencent is no longer broadcasting or streaming Houston Rockets games. 
But again, I have to emphasize this. Daryl Morey did not say anything that was remotely controversial. China is an oppressive state, and they are oppressing other Chinese people in Hong Kong. Another element is that NBA owners would love to get top dollar for their own team once they sell. Chinese billionaires love basketball, and there are a lot of Chinese billionaires being minted every day. Already, Jack Tsai has bought the Brooklyn Nets. He is a uh, Canadian-Taiwanese businessman. He was educated in the United States in the Lawrenceville School in New Jersey and then at Yale. And he weighed in. He's a co-founder of Alibaba. He's worth about $10 billion. He's paid $2.5 billion for the Nets. That was the most ever paid for an NBA franchise. And Tsai weighed in on this controversy against Daryl Morey. Oh, he did it in really smart, clever, you might say devious, touchy-feely, empathetic terms. It was masterful. He asked Americans to consider the sensitivities at play, to consider the history of colonization, to remember the hurt experienced by the Chinese. And I'll quote, because a student of history will understand that the Chinese psyche has heavy baggage when it comes to any threat, foreign or domestic, to carve up Chinese territories. When the topic of any separatist movement comes up, Chinese people feel a strong sense of shame and anger because of the history of foreign occupation. Again, there's people from Hong Kong wanting rights, human rights, rights that the UN says everyone should have, rights that Americans have. The protests were set off by a treaty with the mainland that would have robbed citizens of Hong Kong of legal protections that are basic human rights. So all these American politicians weighed in on the side of Daryl Morey against the NBA. But I have to think there was a noticeable absence. And it is, of course, the president of the United States who has said nothing about the crackdown on protesters in Hong Kong. I guess he wants this deal with China. And in the past, whenever a president would weigh in or the State Department would issue a cable and they talk about Arab Spring or the opening of the former Soviet states, I never thought the words meant much. And maybe as words, they didn't. But the absence of those words and words like them can mean a lot. And we're seeing that now. If Daryl Morey could just say, I'm saying what official U.S. policy is. I'm saying what every politician in the United States agrees with. He'd have a much better leg to stand on. But as it is, there is one prominent politician who is not saying that. And I think it is hurting his cause and really the cause of freedom everywhere. And the one person I haven't mentioned in all this needs mentioning, Adam Silver. I think this is by far the most shameful act in the tenure of Adam Silver as commissioner. I know there's a great deal of money involved, which explains the NBA's cowardice. It also makes clear that it is a cowardice born of greed, and that makes it even worse. On the show today, I spiel about the cacophony of caca tossed at Stephanopoulos and Todd like so much feces from the monkey cage. But first, if nothing else, the film version of Between Two Ferns is a triumph of below-the-line costs. Two ferns. That's all you need. Two ferns, maybe a couple chairs. And who shows up? Will Ferrell, Chrissy Teigen, Benedict Cumberbatch, Paul Rudd, Keanu Reeves, Bruce Willis, Tiffany Haddish, and of course, Zach Galifianakis playing a weird, but you get the impression, not totally exaggerated version of Zach Galifianakis. Scott 
Ackerman is the host of Comedy Bang Bang and the director of Between Two Ferns out on Netflix. He came by to talk about uncomfortable comedy and non-coniferous vascular plants indigenous to humid forest areas. Between the ferns or between two ferns, take your pick. The other has been suggested by no less a luminary than David Letterman. The new movie of that title is out. It is on Netflix. It is a culmination, a celebration of the great funnier die YouTube internet sensation hosted by Zach Galifianakis. Scott Aukerman is the director of that jam. Uh, he was a creator of Between Two Ferns, and he's with me now. Hello. How are Hi, you? Hey, thanks for having me on. So this is a movie that needed to be made. Wait, yeah. was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think this is a movie that uh, several people are wondering why it was made. No, I don't even think we needed to make it. I, I, I honestly think it was just something that sounded fun to do. Mm-hmm. You know, Zach and I started the Between Two Ferns a number of years ago, and we do them all uh, improvised. The celebrities who are on it don't know what's going to happen, and we just kind of spring stuff on them. And, and we thought, you know, we never thought like, oh, this deserves to be a movie. But we thought right. if, if we could make a movie like we make the show, mm-hmm. that would be a really fun way to make a movie. So that's why we did it. Not because we had we did not have the audience in mind of like what they wanted to see or anything like that. We just wanted a, a fun time making a movie. Right. Or I thought maybe it was one of those actorly exercises where he comes up with a rich backstory for his character. <laughs> and therefore, you just had to put on screen. It's too good not yeah, to. Yeah. I, weirdly enough, we did have a lot of backstory for all the characters that we shot. And some at a certain point, we had so much stuff in the first act of the movie before they get out on the road trip. During the filming, I was like, we just, we can't shoot anymore. We were supposed to go to Carol. There's a character, Carol. We were supposed to go to her house and find out about her life and all sorts of stuff. And I was like, we just, <laughs> we're so over budget and we have so much stuff. Let's just cut it. Well, there, there are all these characters who are introduced and you think they're going to be these rich comic tropes and they get a name and that's it. One scene. You never yeah. said, well, they, they had way more scenes. <laughs> that's the interesting thing. There's like, a super rich backstory for Zach and his parents and uh, his coworker Bobby Tisdale. Right. Um, who's actually Bobby Tisdale. Who's actually Bobby Tisdale, comedian Bobby Tisdale, who's so funny in the movie, but he had a whole subplot about dating Zach's sister and being there during a family dinner and all this stuff. And And we cut everything out because it turned out that people just wanted the most simple version of the story, which is that he wants a TV show. Will Ferrell promises him a show if he goes on the road. He goes on the road. He gets a TV show. Did you think you could or should do it like a documentary because the show itself, when you were doing the show for Funny or Die, was more or less, according to that script, let's let's roll for a long amount of time and we'll see what we have in editing, but it's different with a movie and sets and yeah. places to get to? Yeah. It, you know, Zach's done so many movies where the lighting takes such a long time and they look so beautiful. And and sometimes when you're in a situation like that, especially on a low-budget movie, you can get into a situation where you have to make the day. And yeah. so you you rush through the filming part of it, which is the, the part that you're there to do, you know? Like, you're there to keep the camera rolling and get stuff. Otherwise, why did you do all this, you know? But, but when, when you're on a set, every department 
takes so much time to do it, it can just feel like, okay, it's fine. Let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. And we, we wanted to do a movie where we would do long 45-minute takes. We there There's a scene that was cut with Andy Daly, who's a great comedian and improv actor, which was just a 45-minute take of them at a desk talking about stuff. And, you know, I think I think when the lighting is a little more simple and you do it in the fake documentary style, you can edit it in a way that things like continuity of clothes don't matter. Right. Like when you watch a documentary, my wife just made a documentary called Origin Story, which is out on Amazon Prime. It is interesting because if you really look at it, you can tell things were shot years apart because people's hairstyles change and stuff. And in a documentary, no one really cares about that. Right. And our departments, our, our costume department, our hair and makeup department, you know, were very concerned that we were doing things wrong. They'd be like, wait a minute, you because we didn't know what order the scenes were going to go in, when the movie starts to come together, they'll be like, wait a minute, they're coming from this scene with Peter Dinklage, and then they're in a totally different outfit right. in this scene. And I'm like, they changed clothes. Who cares? <laughs> like, no, in a documentary, people don't care about that stuff all that much, and right. it's, it's very freeing. How is writing a good question, other than the fact that it ends in a question mark? So how is the uh, how is the process of writing a good uh, Ferns question different from, say, a roast joke? They're not too dissimilar. I think the type of angles you work are very similar. Uh, I think maybe they're phrased differently. Yes. But they are roast jokes, and, and that's sort of the, the challenge when people, you know, will hear from certain celebrities who want to do one and and or during the making of the movie funny or die would say how about this person how about this person and we really had to take a look at it and say do they have a big enough body of work that they have some stinkers that mm-hmm. we can make fun of do they have a, a social life that we can make fun of that's always very helpful like do they have can i think of three jokes off the top of my head when i hear that person. right right can the average person yeah yes yes you know what i mean fodder target rich environment yes but or, also i'd imagine you don't want someone who you really dislike like who you really yeah. want to zing and kind of hurt that that's especially in the world of politics we've had people where we've had people reach out to us i sometimes think it's a joke but like supposedly dick cheney reached out to us to want to do one and you and, guys are friends with Adam McKay. I don't know if that would work. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I, I think it was a joke. But sometimes we think it would be really funny to lull people into thinking it's going to be a funny interview and then yeah. just have Zach, like, give them a hard-hitting interview that they're not prepared to do. Yeah. But I, I think if you really do loathe someone, it, it would just be hard to do because we're there to have fun and have a good experience. Did the current uh, celebrity guests, were they essentially trained by the guests that you had on the uh, Funny or Die version? Or probably by the end, by, you know, guest 19, 20, 21, they had learned how to act? It's always interesting because people come in and, they, and they're and they really good actors and they want to offer something to the process, right? So they... So they'll ask about ideas like, hey, you know, what if I did this and what if I did this? And and we're always like, yeah, let's try it. You know, Adam Scott, who I know really well, I think he came in with a really funny thing where he was chewing gum the entire time and dressed super douchey, you know, <laughs> and that's real. And he's a he's a comedian and he gets it and he's really funny. So he's able to play that without it seeming hammy. You know what I mean? And speaking of hammy, John Hamm is, all, you know, always great. And Paul Rudd, you know. <laughs> But, like, I'll give you an example. There's Keanu Reeves came in and had seen the show and and was, you know, 
I didn't know if he had ever seen it before or not. And he he put me at ease right away because I was like, hey, these are mean questions. He's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> I love it. That's why I'm here. But he also was like, well, how do you want me to play? And and usually, you know, I say, look, Classic Ferns is always, you know, like Coke Classic. Classic Ferns is always the best of just get upset, you yeah. know, whatever that <laughs> means to you. Just yeah. scowl. <laughs> but, but he also wanted to try something interesting. So we... Um, did part of it where it was a little like he was on a junket for a fake movie. There was this movie he made up called Shotgun Promises. And he was doing this thing where he was like trying to describe the movie. And Zach would go, all right, what is your movie about? And he would start to describe it, but he never said anything other than directors that influenced it. So he's like, well, it's like Scorsese <laughs> meets Kurosawa, but just like a, a pinch of Nicholas Reffin, you know, and he just went on and on with directors and Zach was like, but what is it? What is it about? You know? And so we love stuff like that where it's like, Hey, let's try something with the movie. And John Hamm, John Hamm, we were doing a thing of like, Hey, just be, just, just love everything Zach's doing. Right. Right. With a movie, we found, like, we're on the episodes not as long as we are in the actual episodes. So, like, most episodes are two minutes in the movie. It We really had to whittle it down to just classic ferns. So the, the Keanu Reeves part in it, we really just, you know, used the stuff that was more about uncomfortableness. Also, I would say the John Hamm bit, which is him being super enthusiastic. In the movie, you establish that you kind of uh, waylay him as he's doing a autograph signing in a church in Kansas. So this yeah. guy is Midwestern wholesomeness to the core. Yeah. And it plays... And also, there's not, you know, he has a second to react. He's not creating this whole, wholly, in, wholly different comedy conceit. The Keanu thing could be really funny, but we've never seen a Ferns guest act like that. And it's almost like you don't want it to be too stultifying, but it's in, it's a, it's a different thing if he does that. If yeah. he's, and another big part of it is in that case, Keanu would be embodying the fact that he is, you know, whatever the criticism of Keanu or a celebrity would be. Right. And, and how Two Ferns works, I don't need to tell you, is that the celebrities, we have to think of them as, you know, good, regular people, and it's the guy next to him who is creating the tension by treating them like, you know, big shots or people not in touch with reality. Yeah, exactly. And I think when we when we first started doing these episodes... We thought they all had to be different. And mm-hmm. so yeah. by the Steve Carell one, which I think is episode seven or eight or something like that, we were like, oh, we need to change it up. And so that's why in the Steve Carell one, Steve Carell comes on knowing he's going to be insulted and and decides to insult Zach right from the jump instead, you know, which makes Zach cry, which is a great variation. But you can get into a trap where it's like, then, well, what what other new twists do we do on it? And we found with the infrequency we were putting them out, people just wanted to see them be insulted, you know? And, and sometimes that happens in the filming of them. Zach will go off on these, like, long tangents, which are really funny, but I go, like, we got to edit this down to, like, let's just do the jokes at yeah. a certain point, you know? Is there, does the audience, I mean, did you think about this? Did the audience identify with Zach? Were they rooting for Zach? I don't even mean in the movie. I mean, after after the 21 episodes of Ferns, did the audience have a, I'm trying to f- think if I did, did they have a connection to Zach that you didn't really even expect them to have? I think what's interesting is, is in the movie, I think we tried to put a lot of that stuff in of like make you get get him on the audience's side. Right. You you end up putting in like these big emotional arcs. I mentioned, you know, the whole family subplot was cut and that's 
you know, in order to hopefully make people say, I like Zach and I, I'm invested in his journey. And what we found is people are invested in the journey just because it's Zach. Yeah. And he's so likable and we didn't need any of that stuff. And really the simplest stakes of like, hey, you get a talk show if you do this were enough for people. And they did not care about all of the emotional arcs that we had set up. And which is a bummer because we we filmed a lot of great stuff with great actors. But yeah, I mean, we just just people got it. They'd seen the Between Two Ferns. And even if they had it, they understood, yeah, this guy wants a talk show. Yeah, done. But all the extra stuff can be released in some form. I, I mean, this is the trend of improv comedy. Let's have I an Anchorman. Know. Let's have an Anchorman with an entirely different cut. The issue is, is all of those things were on DVD or Blu-ray and Netflix is an entirely different ballgame. They don't they don't do that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. so you're saying the format that has costs to printing it versus the format that is literally yes. infinite, that second format right. will suppress the information. Well, that uh-huh. was what I found with Comedy Bang Bang, the TV shows. We put out the first season, the second season, the third season, and we put so many extras on that. I mean, I really wanted it to be a deep dive for people. And then by the fourth season, people were the the DVD company was just like, we can't make any of these anymore. <laughs> like we're, we're not making any money on this. But Netflix, you know, I, I investigated a little bit of like, hey, do you have any sort of like Bandersnatch technology that you know where we could do a, like an extended cut or or anything like that? And like, here's the pitch. Honestly, I was like, look, we I have a four hour version I could put together that's that's not even really comedy anymore. It's like a <laughs> contemplative you know, meditation on Zach's character, you know, and has all of the different scenes and they're like, what are you even pitching us? It's <laughs> it's not comedy? No. <laughs> We're not gonna buy this. But then maybe there'll be an uprising like the Batman versus Superman release the full yes, cut thing. The Snyder cut. <laughs> yes. That's what I hope. <laughs> is that all the release the Snyder cut people just come to me and tweet at me constantly. Yeah. Just that's my that's my one true wish. Zach related uh, fan service and then maybe in your uh, in your four hour cut we'll actually get the Keanu Reeves movie like, yes it'll end no the, yeah we probably yeah. would put it in actually the one thing that we are doing no I don't mean the bet I mean you'll shoot the, the shotgun promises yes, I would yeah. love that you'll do a a trailer for Shotgun Promises. Right. But the one thing that, that Netflix that we are doing, which is cool, is they threw us some extra money to expand the actual interviews. So we're putting those out now. The Paul Rudd one is out already. And we so we're making the five minute or four minute or whatever uh, uh, longer than in the movie because we shot everything like it should be a real episode. And so I put together 10 of them. Yeah. So there will be, yeah, we put we put out 22 episodes in 11 years, and now we're putting out 10 in the next few weeks. It's unbelievable. This is where this is what Netflix means, and this is what the internet means. And look at Arrested Development. I mean, there used to be this clamoring for more content, and then they dump it on us, and it's like, okay, maybe, maybe wanting a little more was actually good. Maybe scarcity. Hold on. Hear me out now. <laughs> maybe there's a benefit to scarcity and training the audience audience to appreciate the entertainment in front of them. Hmm, never thought of that. Maybe. And like I said, we did that with the original episodes, and that's the fear you get of making a movie is like, are we going to wear out our welcome? And it certainly was something that we were very concerned about. And now seeing the reaction to the movie, it actually, you know, I thought it was going to be a movie that just like my fans or niche comedy fans liked. But actually seeing how it's breaking through to people who didn't even know what Between Two Ferns is and are like, I watched this thing on Netflix. It's crazy. It's funny. Like, I think non-comedy fans like it way more than comedy fans in a way. So I'm glad we made it because I think it's making people happy. And that's all I really care about. 
Scott Ackerman is the director of Between Two Ferns. It is on Netflix now and forever. Scott, great to meet you. Great to meet you. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. I'm not usually one to get despondent or dejected over a contentious interview held on the public airwaves. Newsmakers, elected officials need to be held to account. It falls to we in the media to perform that task. Still, the conflict and bickering between George Stephanopoulos and Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio got so heated that for a moment I wanted to hide. I wish there would be the same outrage uh, for this, uh, for, for what the president said about China, the same outrage that there was when, when we saw what, when, when the Clinton campaign and the Democrat National Committee hired a foreigner who worked with Russians to dig up dirt on the president, put it in a document that was given to the Department of Justice, and then the FBI used that document to go to a secret court to spy on the Trump campaign. And you guys weren't, weren't outraged about that. But that, now the president makes a statement about China. I, I'm just, the guy who's been I'm tougher just, on China than any other president. And you think this is so this should, somehow should I a big deal. So tougher than McKinley. Contributed forces which crushed the Boxer Rebellion. Tougher than Eisenhower. Tougher than Truman. You know, the Korean War was a proxy war between the U.S. and China. U.S. weapons literally killed 200,000 Chinese. I'd say Truman was pretty tough on China. But if you think that was all pointless prattling from the shirt-sleeved representative from Ohio, Chuck Todd, over on Meet the Press, invited on the senior senator from Wisconsin. And that exchange was marked by a lack of comity. I'm 64 years old. I have never in my lifetime seen a president after being elected, not having some measure of well wishes from his opponents. Uh, I've never seen a president's uh, administration be sabotaged from the day after election. Uh, I've never seen uh, no, no measure of honeymoon whatsoever. And so what President Trump's had to endure, a false accusation. By the way, you've got John Brennan on. You, you ought to ask uh, Director Brennan, what did Peter Strzok mean when he texted Lisa Page on December 15, 2016? Senator. Quote, Who, boy? He had no honeymoon period. Actually, he did. He had three, one for each wife, and then one for every assorted playmate and porn star and Putin. This all, this all came, you heard the theory there, it was because of the lack of well wishes. What, Nancy Pelosi couldn't have sent a muffin basket? It all stems from that. And then as soon as he mentioned Struck and Page as a means of explaining Ukraine, boom, Chuck Todd cuts him off, or at least tried to. Anyway, if you thought that was nuts and unproductive, this moment then came about. He would like to know, and I would like to know, and I know his supporters would like to know, where did this all come from? Who planted that false story? Senator. Leaked, you know, I, I, have a, I have my third letter into the Inspector General of the right, Intelligence Senator. Committee asking to just confirm, just confirm, are you investigating those leaks that Peter Struck talked about in that text? All right, text Senator, I have no idea so again, why. No, that's, that's why, a setup. Why, it is entirely relevant Fox, to this point. Why a Fox News conspiracy propaganda stuff is popping up on here, it I is, have no idea. It is not, that is, I have no that is, idea that is why we're going here. That is, that is, Senator, because I'm this is underlying about, exactly I'm why asking, President Trump is upset and why his supporters are upset right, at the news media. Okay, no, this is not about the media. Senator Johnson, Senator Johnson, please. Can we please answer the question that I asked you instead of trying to make Donald Trump feel better here that you're not criticizing? I'm not, I'm not. Out of deference to the office of senator, not deference to the person holding that office, Chuck Todd was respectful. But what a barrage of bullshit. 
the Johnson interview was worse than the Jordan interview because Jordan was at least in studio and the miscommunication was largely governed by interpersonal dynamics. When you have two parties in a discussion, they're just at cross purposes. But the Meet the Press interview with Ron Johnson also had a satellite remote studio element. Total anarchic horse crap. Now, it's not as if a dogged interviewer can't press and get answers to questions while allowing the interviewee the usual accommodations for deflection. Take Chris Wallace over on Fox. He interviewed Florida Representative Val Demings and Wallace had some pertinent questions for her. Do you believe that there is now hard evidence that President Trump committed high crimes and misdemeanors? And do you believe that the House will now vote to impeach him? Now, that is a good question. That was tough. It was to the point. It's what we want from a Sunday interview with a lawmaker. Well, Chris, let me begin here. And she began in a place of not answering the question, and she ended in that same place. So Chris Wallace tried again. And this time, the congresswoman said, well, we have to seriously look into impeachment. Okay, so what do we have here? There was some misdirection. There was the technique of answering the question you want to answer, not the question you were actually asked. It's really standard talk show stuff. A push and pull, eventually maybe get somewhere. The congresswoman clearly, however, did have a signature technique. See if you can pick it up. It's very subtle. Here, Wallace asks her about the second whistleblower. Her answer begins. Well, let me just say this, Chris. Another question got this answer. Well, Chris, let me say this. Next question was about impeachment precedents, and it got this answer. Well, Chris, let, let me just say this. And the ultimate question was about Adam Schiff. Chris, let me just say this. And finally, Wallace just said, okay, Congresswoman, this is our bonus question. What is a four-letter word that's used for a pronoun indicating an object close at hand? Let me just say this. Correct! And for our double or nothing, lose it or use it bonus, fill in the word common to this phrase from Richard II by Shakespeare. Blank blessed plot, blank earth, blank realm, blank England. Time's ticking. Three seconds left. Do you have an answer? Let me just say this. Yes! But as for Jordan and Johnson, no! Wrong. No value except as an example of desperate disinformation. In debating, there's a technique known as the gish gallop. It's when you go so quickly and throw so many facts and figures out, it's clear your only attempt is to befuddle the audience and confuse the issue. Now, there weren't really that many facts cited, but man, was the rate of speed frantic. We clocked Jordan and Johnson as talking at a rate of 210 to 220 words per minute. Normal human speech is 150. I'm like 170. So, so Jordan and Johnson were talking 50% faster than a normal human. And without a few of the speed bumps, meaning Todd's and Stephanopoulos' questions, they could have reached the limits of comprehensible speech, which is about 300 words a minute. What a display of prolix piffle. The president's most impassioned defenders seem to have settled on a defense strategy of hit him fast, hit him hard, trade bombast and volume for sensibility and fact. It's like guerrilla warfare, if you think about it. Information warfare. It makes zero sense. If you do stop to think about it, but it depends on the theory that no one has the time or capacity to stop and think. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He speaks at 200 words a minute, except when addressing his southern grandmother. And he goes down to 175. Christina DeJosa, also just producer, types at 200 words a minute 
Which means when transcribing someone who's speaking at the usual 150 words a minute, well, Christina's wasting about a quarter of her resources. The gist. Well, if you were searching about for basketball team antagonists to China, you might think of the Washington Generals, but somehow China doesn't take that threat seriously. Umpru depru duperu, and thanks for listening.